From early on, we're taught to think about our physical health. And a little later down the line, we might even learn a thing or two about taking care of our mental well-being. But unfortunately, there's another area of wellness that usually gets neglected. What more important life skill can we teach our kids in school than personal finance, understanding credit scores, interest rates, retirement plans, and the importance of starting early? Because children without financial literacy usually become adults without financial literacy. But where do you even start when you want to teach financial wellness to the masses? We tend to think about financial wellness as a personal journey. So we all have different needs and we all need to follow a different path. And I think that's really the reason that you need a, a wide mix of tools that can be adapted to each person's circumstance. The more diverse the banking products, the more diverse the channels that we're looking to reach the underserved, the more effective, I think, we're going to be as a society in being more financially inclusive. This is Financial Futures, the podcast that charts the frontiers of fintech innovation. In this series, we're exploring some of the biggest advances in banking platform ecosystems to guide you through the developments that are changing the way consumers and businesses alike think about their finances. I'm your host, Erin Dangler. And today, we're focusing on financial wellness and wealth management. I'll be joined by Nicole Myers, Vice President of Strategic Account Management at Personetics, Nick Woodcock, Digital Banking Executive at FIS, and Eric Biddle, Wealth Management Practice Lead at NTT Data Services. We'll be asking how financial institutions are encouraging users to think about their financial health, and we'll be looking at some of the solutions that are helping us to be a more financially savvy society. But before we dive into the solutions that are helping us to better manage our money, let's find out what exactly we mean by financial wellness. From my perspective, financial wellness is really defined as the overall financial health of an individual or a family. And of course, each person's definition of financial wellness is, is probably different based on their income or their expectations. But one of the things that I found interesting recently was TIA just had published a survey which found that only 22% of respondents actually considered themselves financially healthy. So clearly we have a lot of work to do as an industry. Um, an additional challenge with financial wellness is the compounding effect. Normally the financial concept of compounding has positive connotations, but when you think about the underbelly of compounding, compounding uh, can also work in a negative way when it comes to poor financial health. And what I mean by that is it has generational implications, which is why I think the gap between the underserved and the wealthy communities continues to widen. Um, the other thing I'd like to say is that when it comes to financial wellness, you know, if parents don't save for college, their children will likely find it difficult for them to afford secondary education or training, which in turn generally lowers their earnings potential. And if parents don't save for their retirement, these children will likely end up helping support their parents, further reducing their disposable income available for saving, and therefore the cycle continues. So how do we fix this? There is no single answer, but in my mind, it begins with financial literacy. Only 21 states currently require a personal finance course. 
as a condition for high school graduation. And I think that needs to change. I mean, what more important life skill can we teach our kids in school than personal finance, understanding credit scores, interest rates, retirement plans, and the importance of starting early? Because children without financial literacy usually become adults without financial literacy. I like that. We're talking about financial wellness overall, but financial health, it just fits in right with physical health and mental health. We can totally see how those all tie together. Who benefits from this? Who benefits from financial wellness? I think the easier question is who doesn't benefit from financial wellness. As a society, we have to overcome and figure out how do we make financial wellness easier to access, easier to afford, easier to adopt, but everybody benefits. I think that you mentioned there's many different types of wellness as well as being healthy, eating healthy, and it looks different for every person. I think we tend to think about financial wellness as a personal journey. So we all have different needs and we all need to follow a different path. I think that's really the reason that you need a, a wide mix of tools that can be adapted to each person's circumstance. So, you know, for your kids, it's about budgeting their spending, you know, for someone who's starting a small business, it can be making sure that they can pay their taxes when they're due. It really means something different to each one of us. So you're talking about personalizing financial wellness, right? There's not one path, one size fits all, because that can be part of the stress is comparing ourselves to the Joneses and trying to keep up with them. Well, they have this as their financial wellness. Is it sort of deciding what our needs are and creating our own path? That's exactly right. None of us are looking just to grow our bank accounts, right? We all have our own personal goals. That might be to start a family. It might be to buy a house. It might be to pull ourselves out from debt. Financial health ultimately is what you're striving for in order to achieve those goals. So there's a lot of different tools out there that are personalized that help you get there. For example, budgets is a great example where there's a standard budget. Everyone can set up one, but no one does it. It's like doing your finance homework. You know, what your your kid needs is a personalized budget that tells them how much you can go to restaurants and, you know, how much you possibly can go to a bar and we don't tell them about it. It's a different mix for each person. And I think that there's a lot of really interesting fintechs out there that are enabling that to happen at scale and giving the uh, diversity of tools that haven't really existed in the past. And if I could, Aaron, there's a, an important element there, and, and Nicole just touched on it, which is what can technology do to help the overall picture of financial wellness? And I think it's because it's such an overwhelming topic, because it's so kind of scary and, and large, but everybody needs to do something about it, then I think what we have to look at is how does technology make that easier? What can we do to try to make across the demographic spectrum, age groups, it less opaque and clearer for everybody to actually dive in and get to understand how they can shape their financial wellness, what their financial journeys are, and how they can start having a positive effect on their financial health. And I think that's kind of a critical thing to think about because I think we're on the on the cusp of actually seeing a lot of new technologies, Nicole said, applied to this problem to say, how do we make it easier? How do we make it more accessible? How do we make it more universal for people to easily understand their financial journeys and how to improve their financial health as well? So Nick, can you tell us about some of those digital channels that help clarify the space? So I think it starts with some great tools as well, focused on 
the data and the analytics. So looking at people's financial transactions and saying, okay, if we understand where people are spending money, and then we can start guiding them to say, are they making good choices? We can start helping them with budgeting, helping them identify savings goals. We can start helping them to understand what they're doing with their money today. So it starts, I think, with advances that have been made around the data and analytics and trying to apply some of those to really serve the needs of financial wellness. Then I think it's access and making it easy for people to get that view of where they're spending money, how they're doing against their budgets, what they're doing against their savings goals, you know, how their credit score is. And so accessibility, I think, is a key piece of it as well. So whether it's in your online banking, mobile banking, or really whenever you look at your finances, and then also making it widely accessible. Making it widely accessible, I find it interesting just because there are so many options out there. And we can, you know, as a consumer, I can start looking and examining these things around my financial wellness. But what is contributing to the lack of adoption around it? When you talk to folks and you listen to why they're hesitant or resistant or why they won't adopt, you hear a large variety of reasons. But some of the top reasons are, you know, people think they can't afford to save or they don't know how to get started. Too many choices, it's too complex, I don't understand it, or, uh, you know, the procrastination factor. I'll, I'll get to it someday. But the reality is for many, many folks, it's just scary. Looking straight in the eye at your budget and what you have coming in and what you have going out, understanding all the tools and the securities and what's a mutual fund and what's a 401k plan or a 403b plan. You know, these are all based on IRC codes, right? And so they're scary. Those are some of my experiences in terms of speaking with folks about why adoption is challenging or why there's uh, this inertia. Those are some of the top reasons I've seen. Thinking about the adoption issue, and I think part of it is that there's up to recently um, been a lot of effort involved in taking the initiative and then downloading transactions, putting things into a spreadsheet, working on a, on a financial tool. And that level of effort has been a barrier to a lot of people. First of all, they need to get over the barrier of saying, I understand enough about my finances and I feel confident and comfortable in downloading things and putting them into a spreadsheet. That's a big barrier. So I think what we've got to do is say, to get to adoption, what you've got to do is make those tools much easier to use, to take away the effort involved in sorting out your transactions and making that much, much easier is really critical, I think. I would maybe go even one step further, Nick. The cognitive load is enormous, and that's definitely the biggest barrier. There is a big role to play in proactive services and automation for that matter. The degree to which we can put opportunities in front of customers and in some ways act on their behalf with their permission in their best interest eliminates you know, some of those opportunities to prioritize the short term over the long term. So we think a big opportunity ahead of us is to use proactive tools that are moving money for customers or anticipating cash flow issues and alerting them before they get that overdraft fee. And I think the more we see proactive versus reactive, we're also going to have higher adoption rates. I love that, being proactive about it. So what are some of the other 
challenges for consumers in managing their finances. I think these are probably pretty universal. Eric, would you agree? I would. And uh, without stating the obvious, (laughs) income is kind of the biggest challenge, right? I mean, the the less you have, the more difficult it is to manage your finances. But leaving that aside for a second and recognizing that it's a lot tougher to control your income than it is to control your expenses, generally speaking. As a side note, I think we have to solve the root cause of income inequality. I mean, we have to figure out how we can get education and training to drive better outcomes, earnings outcomes. And we have to make sure that it's economically viable and sustainable in the long term. But there are some simpler problems to solve. And so lack of a monthly budget, poor discipline sticking to budgets if they do create them, not including a savings amount in your budget. I also love the YOLO mentality, right? There's this id, and it's all about instant gratification, and you only live once, and I deserve this purchase. I've been working really hard. But we can get into bad habits with overspending. Uh, So I think that's a problem. Lack of a professional advisor. Not everybody can afford one, but for those who can, they either don't have one or don't use one. Credit balances, not paying their credit cards off, having a poor credit rating, it's just a spiral. It just spirals out of control. So to kind of sum it up, I think in my mind, knowledge plus discipline really is uh, the outcome is financial wellness. There are a lot of challenges to overcome when improving financial wellness. And while some factors like income are more difficult to solve, there are some other obstacles, such as managing our spending, that could have a simpler fix and still yield good results. But people can only start to navigate these barriers with the proper education, which is unfortunately missing in most schools. So how are financial institutions filling this educational void and helping customers to adopt financial wellness strategies? They've got a big role in in doing that. And I think in understanding the barriers that we just talked about and the expenses and those kinds of things, that's when they they look at what they can do in terms of being more proactive, understanding how we can push things to customers is really critical. So I think from a financial institution point of view, they have a huge opportunity to not only help those consumers out, but once they've helped those consumers out, they're really going to get customers for life because they're going to create that feeling that they care for those customers and they care for those customers' outcomes. So, for example, if they can use automated and more more proactive tools to provide some of that discipline, giving you that kind of outreach allows financial institutions to establish a connection with their customers and then really build great loyalty for those customer relationships as well. Nick, something you're saying kind of triggers some of the conversations I have with my clients too, right? Large banks and something we talk about is how does an incumbent financial institution stay relevant in someone's life? And it's by helping people create these healthier routines. And I think one way to measure that as well is through interactions. You know, today you might log in, you know, online banking, you go on the desktop once a month, you know, maybe a couple of times a month, you log into your mobile app of your bank. Whereas a social media platform, a Facebook or Instagram, there's maybe 15 interactions per day. 
If a bank can become relevant and have 15 interactions with their customer, that means that they're creating that lasting relationship that you're talking about. And I think that's a, an aspirational goal. If the bank is able to provide the right type of guidance and meaningful interactions, that relationship becomes enduring. And that's, I think, where you also see the, the benefit come back to the bank by investing in this space of financial wellness. An element of that is then trust, because I think a key piece of financial wellness is it's got to be trusted advice. It's got to be advice that the consumer feels, again, is in their best interests. You know, banking relationships have always been trust relationships. Like the bank is going to get this transaction done. They're going to make the payment. They're going to hold my deposits and those deposits are going to be secure. This is just an extension of building that trust in the financial institution by saying the bank is looking out for me and they're trying to make sure that I've got the right habits and that that I'm going to be on the right path from a financial point of view. I'm loving all these words I'm hearing, uh, relationship, aspirational, trust. I mean, I feel like, is this a financial podcast or is like Brene Brown talking to us right now? (laughs) This is great because really, and we talked about who benefits from financial wellness. I mean, Everybody does, or as Eric said, who doesn't? But it's also the business, the financial institutions themselves benefit. And it sounds like what they're doing is trying to help everybody be the best version of themselves, which again, is this financial? (laughs) I mean, this is a topic, right, we've been talking about for years, for decades, but there's also like a very timely component too, right? Like right now, even in the past couple months, in the past week, you know, a lot of large retail banks are coming out and slashing overdraft fees and demonstrating that that fee income, which is you know often considered predatory, that income is replaceable. And I, you know, I feel really strongly that this relationship deepening through personalization, that's you know, one way that banks can find other ways to grow their relationships with customers that, you know, are helpful rather than hurtful. So I think we're seeing as well, the regulatory environment is pushing in this direction to, you know, have financial institutions think about friendly alternatives to bring customers deeper into the banking system. And I think you're also going to see a lot of big momentum in this next year in this area. That concept of of more inclusiveness in the financial industry is really important as well. How do we reach out to the underbanked, to the unbanked, different generations and ethnicities and social groups to, again, feel that trust, get into that view of, of being able to manage their finances? And I think a lot of financial institutions are government-led efforts as well to create funds to push financial inclusion I think has got to start with the consideration of financial wellness and how do you how do you do financial wellness across the population across all groups the underserved and I think certainly the technology and the concepts behind the technology play a big role in in pushing that agenda of financial inclusion. And I think this is a great segue into this concept of financial inclusiveness inclusivity is that a word? Uh, <laughs> So how do you create a socially-minded, financially viable wealth management platform? There's always, always going to be demand for personal advisory services from, 
medium through ultra high net worth individuals, family offices. Those needs are sophisticated, especially as your income grows. So I don't think there's going to be any change there. Where I think that the big opportunity is, is the vast majority of Americans simply don't have viable access to a financial advisor. But there's a good news to this, right? Most Americans don't need that level of sophistication. So the good news is that there's a massively underserved community with a simpler advisory need. And I see that as the biggest opportunity in the future of wealth management. Again, it gets back to how can it become economically viable, right? So the first thing is, you know, if you just think about the platform itself, it needs to be vastly available. It has to be independent. And it's got to be really inexpensive. Think Facebook for personal finance. Second, it has to scale. It has to be digitally enabled at a much lower price point. So I think that the third thing that needs to be done is I think that we have to, as an industry, get much more creative as to uh, how we pay for these services and make them economically viable. Fourth, it's got to be super simple. It's got to be an intuitive UI. It's got to be clean. And this is near and dear to Nicole's heart. I know it has to be simple and the math has to be done for the client in their best interest. It's got to be highly interactive. It's got to be aesthetically appealing. And it's got to be, again, simple. So fifth, it's got to be fun. I think that there's, you know, if we look at the behavioral psychology behind some of the social media platforms, it's got to be highly interactive, but it also has to increase uh, your serotonin and endorphin levels. If you look at the psychology of behaviors, you know, things that make you feel good, you're much more likely to adopt. And then last but not least, I think that we need to do a better job bringing holistic financial planning to our clients across all all their financial needs. It's not just about wealth. It's about saving, borrowing, growing assets, protecting assets. It's everything that's part of your fin life. I come from a, a pretty financially stable background, but I just feel like I am so inefficient because I'm logging into so many different portals and dragging stuff around. It would be great if I just had one place where it was all there and it would just streamline my life. And then I could probably find places to trim the fat and use that for, you know, my vacation to Hawaii or whatever. I think that it's in some ways what you're talking about, it's the holy grail. Because right now what's going on is there's an ecosystem that's being built in order to achieve that. It's not one financial institution that's going to be able to do it alone. And I think that's the role that fintechs play and the role that partnerships play in making that happen. It's through companies like FIS that are able to bring many financial institutions together and implement these types of tools that scale all these platforms. It's by, you know, tiny fintechs like where we work that are able to be agile enough that they can build these types of services from the ground up and can be able to be implemented across many different infrastructures. That's kind of the role that each of us plays in this space is helping to bridge some of these capabilities because it isn't possible to achieve that holy grail if you know one provider builds it end to end. So Nicole, do you have any examples of what fintechs are doing in this space to develop new products and serve this category? For sure, we have tons. I mean, there's there's so many different types of fintechs. I think it begins for sure with the data side. There's you know plenty of fintechs out there that are they're doing a lot of data enrichment to understand people's financial behaviors. Some of the aggregators are doing that as well. There's fintechs like a uh, bill pay that are also helping people to unsubscribe. 
A couple of my favorites, Pay Near Me, for example, are enabling underbanked customers to go into, say, 7-Elevens and deposit their cash and load them onto a card so they can become part of the digital mainstream or free will that's helping people to assign their estate money over to charities digitally. There's so many different providers out there and they can be very specialized as a result, but they only really make an impact if they can reach scale. So there's tons of examples out there and I think you're going to see so many more in the coming years. And I think one thing I'd like to say about that, because there are many, many solutions. When you look at it, as a financial institution, that's great that there's that many, but it also can be somewhat confusing. So I think it's also got to start for the financial institution, whether you're kind of a mega bank, a regional bank, or a community bank. And I spend a lot of time with community bankers and, and regional bankers, and I think they've got a great role to play in this area. But it's about setting a deliberate strategic agenda. What do you want to be How do you want to take advantage of financial wellness? How do you want to provide financial wellness? How do you want to look at financial inclusivity and reach out to maybe underbanked and and unbanked, whether you're a minority-owned bank or, or a community bank, then reaching those connections to your community, I think, is very important. But it's got to start with a strategy that says, you know, my strategy is about understanding customers' financial journeys and helping them along their way. And then you can start sifting through the numbers of fintechs and financial strategies that are out there to pull together something that is engaging for your customers, that gets the customers where they need to be to reach their financial goals. So I think it's got to start as well for the banker to understand what is it that I want to try and accomplish with all of this great technology that's out there and, and emerging? And so you're talking about all these strategies for financial wellness. Is it the same? Are those the same strategies for financial inclusion? Can they go together or are they separate tracks? I think it's part of the same conversation. I think once you understand what markets you're trying to serve, how you're trying to serve them, and how you can reach out. So whether you are looking at financial inclusion as a specific objective, then I think absolutely a lot of the tools that we've been talking about, a lot of the fintechs, are extremely relevant to reaching out to underbanked or unbanked populations. So they do go hand in hand, but I think you can pursue both of them as well independently. There are plenty of ways for institutions to help people improve their financial wellness. And some of these can even promote financial inclusivity too. But some solutions are only exclusive to one or the other. So what are some alternative methods that could help us to be a more financially inclusive society? This is the the million dollar question, right? And And I would agree with Nick's point, right? To be financially inclusive, there are some different strategies, although they go hand in hand. I'll mention maybe four, I would say, that are top of mind. The first is to go digital. A lot of our banking relationships and the trust that we were talking about today happens from in-person relationships. And part of the challenge we face with the underbanked community is just distance and, and lack of access to branches, to bankers, to advisors, not feeling welcome in those banks. So moving to digital really eliminates some of the, the barriers that exist today. 
The second one is, you know, removing some of the predatory type practices that are having an outsized impact on lower income populations or people that are basically forcing a lot of people to turn to alternative financial services because they need access to their paycheck on the day they get paid. You know, the large fees that are being um, layered on force people or encourage people to look outside the mainstream. And then Nick talked about accessibility. So the third one, I would completely agree. Access to a full range of products and people who are thin file customers and have insufficient data, oftentimes those people are underbanked. And we need to think about alternatives, you know, to use different types of data in order to determine their credit worthiness, right? That's how we can provide them a full range of lending products. And then I think the, th- the fourth pillar, which probably is the most important, I would say is around customer centricity. So being able to understand the customer's needs, being able to provide transparency around why we're recommending certain types of products and providing different solutions that help customers to meet their needs, not just to encourage a customer to buy the next best product. The thing I would add is that the more diverse the banking products, the more diverse the channels that we're looking to reach the underserved, the more effective, I think, we're going to be as a society in being more financially inclusive. So it's not just the bank and going into a bank branch. It's getting new ways of of accessing financial services and financial products. That's the critical factor, I think, in terms of going to where the customers are, not expecting them to come to you, is the way that we're going to get a step change in terms of the breadth of people participating in finance and understanding their finances. I I agree with Nicole and Nick. Um, One of the things what we really need to do is is be honest um, as an industry and really help in an honest way. I think that there's still a lot of distrust. I think that, you know, consumers generally think that, you know, somebody's out to get them. Somebody's out to overcharge them or selling something they don't need. So I think, you know, doing the right thing for the customer, if that's the front and center, everything else works itself out. I always love these conversations, but I did not expect to feel so inspired (laughs) today um, about all of this relationship building and trust and evolving the system. Um, Eric, I think you spoke at the beginning about the cycles that we have around learning our finances uh, in family or not learning them in school. So putting all of this into place and maybe wrapping up this conversation How do you see things moving forward? What's the impact on future generations? This is a generational issue, right? The gap, we keep talking about the gap between those that have and those that don't have. And that gap gets bigger and bigger every day. I think a lot of the tools that Nicole talked about, Nick talked about, the strategies and so forth, these are all really helpful tools, I think, that will help people start making better decisions. But it's really going to take a long time for this cycle to break. We, we have to break the cycle, and it's a generational cycle. It just gets worse and worse and worse, generation to generation, without making the proper financial decisions. So making it cheap as possible, user-friendly as 
as possible, engaging as possible, and affordable as possible helps to start making better decisions, which over time, back to my compounding uh, comment earlier, that will start to eventually, in my opinion, help close the gap. I don't think it'll close the gap exclusively. We have to talk about skill sets and increasing income. But on the on the expense side, managing your finances, I think it'll, it'll help uh, start closing that wealth gap. From my perspective, I think what we'll see over the next few years is adoption of this technology where we're going to be serving customers where they want to be served with information, with abilities to make good financial decisions, whether it's how they make payments, how they understand their budgets and their savings. And I think lots of ways in which people can participate But I think it has to be deliberate and I think it has to be thoughtful to actually make that a reality. The last part I would just mention is that I think there's going to be a lot of competition actually in this space to play a role in financial wellness. And that competition ultimately is going to lead to adoption that Nick's talking about. There is no question at this point that the mass customers make up the majority you know, of the population in the United States. And this is a, there's still a really big untapped opportunity about how to serve them. And the technology in many ways is there in order to drive adoption. So as Nick was saying, if we can bring some of these smart strategies, thoughtful strategies, and couple them with the right technology, technology, you're going to see a pretty powerful mix that's ultimately going to create the opportunities we're talking about. As, as um, Eric was saying, the you still have these generational gaps in the compounding effect, but I, I really do think and I feel hopeful that with all of the competition and the technology, we're going to see some really big uplift in the coming years. Nicole Myers is Vice President of Strategic Account Management at Personetics. Nick Woodcock is Digital Banking Executive at FIS. And Eric Biddle is Wealth Management Practice Lead at NTT Data Services. That's it for today's show. Thanks for joining us. We'll see you next time when we'll be asking what the future has in store for the world of enterprise collections. Enterprise Collections.